Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I am Jeremy Goldcorn, hosting solo today with Alt Kaiser and David Moser. I'd like to introduce today's topic with an assertion based entirely on anecdotal evidence, but quite a lot of it. That people of my parents' generation did not obsessively talk about real estate and housing prices, but it seems that my generation, Generation X, and perhaps even the millennials, sometimes seem unable to talk about anything else at all. This is true everywhere in the world where there is no war,、uh, and especially in China. So while I find、uh, dinner table conversations about real estate holdings of fellow guests excruciatingly boring, there is no question that buying and selling property is an immensely important part of Chinese people's lives and economic decisions. Real estate is also reliably a major media story in both the Western and Chinese press, and a source of endless delight to economists and financial analysts who study China. With me today to discuss aspects of the real estate business in China are China correspondent for American Public Media's Marketplace Rob Schmitz, who has covered many aspects of the real estate industry in China, from ghost malls to land seizures. Rob has been on the show previously and is perhaps best known as the man who debunked the claims of the highly successful showman and fantasist Mike Daisy about the treatment of workers in factories that make iPhones. Welcome back to Seneca, Rob. Thanks, Jeremy. Also joining us today for the first time on Seneca is Timothy Coglan, associate director of luxury retail at Savills, the global real estate consultancy, and proprietor of Malsuit.com. Welcome to Seneca, Timothy. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. So let's start talking about real estate with one of the topics that the Western press loves to cover, which is ghost cities and <laughs> ghost malls. Are they real? What do they mean? How silly is some of the media coverage of them? How how much empty housing is there in China?、Uh, Rob, perhaps you can start with that. <laughs> well, my coverage has been particularly silly.、Um, I, I, I've covered I've covered、uh, in the past year. I've I've sort of traveled around and revisited、uh, a few of the cities that I'd visited earlier in my tenure at Marketplace, which was I came here in 2010. And the first story that I did when I came to、uh, China in 2010 as a reporter. Was to go to Ordos because at that time、uh, there were a, a lot of media、uh, stories about this city in Inner Mongolia that was completely deserted and made for you know, perhaps five hundred thousand to a million people. So it's around the size of Pittsburgh in the United States, and、uh, there, there wasn't anybody living there.、Um, and everyone was saying, "Oh, this is a sign of、uh, a looming property crash." And and so I went there and and、uh, made some observations, did a couple stories, and then I, I recently went back there. And I also went back to、um, another place that I'd gone about a year ago,、uh, the Binhai district of、uh, Tianjin,、uh, which is home to、uh, a place called Yujiapu. It's a development、uh, which is a replica of Manhattan、uh, outside of Tianjin on the High River.、Uh, and developers basically、um, took an island and、uh, they shored it up and they made it to look like Manhattan. And they wanted to build. Uh, sort of like a there was going to be a Rockefeller Center, a Lincoln Center,、uh, World Trade Towers.、Um, there was going to be、uh, a very large high-speed train、uh, station there, the largest in China, they, supposedly, and also six subway lines. And and so I visited these places over the last four years, and then I've returned to them this year, and I've. I've made a lot of observations, and and one of the things that I that I saw, at least in a place like Ordos, which is kind of unique because it's it's、um, 
it, it's, it, it became a ghost town primarily because the coal industry sort of tanked in China and it was a coal town. And uh, these days, Ordo's uh, property value is, uh, has totally declined. Um, I found squatters living uh, in office buildings, um, paying for paying rent to live in these office spaces with no windows. They would use the bathroom down the hall in what was basically an office building or intended to be an office building. Um, and then in the case of Yujiapu in, in, uh, in Tianjin, um, that development uh, is basically it, not much is happening right now. Um, construction is pretty much halted. Investors have pulled out. Um, and uh, this was a very, very expensive project for Tianjin. It was around at least $50 billion, um, if not more. And how representative of the situation are these two places? I mean, are there, are there many other places around China that are similar? Well, Ordos is sort of a freak show. I think that Tianjin is maybe a little more representative, but I think you know, they're, they're both extremes. However, you know, it, when, when one travels around China now, if you just get out uh, you know, into the third, fourth, fifth tier cities, it's inevitable that you run into these luxury condo projects. You're usually near an airport. And um, they're oftentimes empty. Um, I mean, I think you, you can't run into any county right now in eastern China without, without seeing this. Um, they're here in Beijing. They're in Shanghai. Hangzhou has a lot of them. You can go on and on. But uh, obviously, they're not as, there's not as huge of a failure, perhaps, as Ordos and, and Tianjin. But this is something that, uh, that, that dots the landscape in China. Timothy, maybe we can turn to you to talk about malls specifically rather than cities. I mean, this is another thing that you've seen in the media, you know, the, the Great Mall of China that was a, a big sort of uh, flagship project in, in Guangdong uh, and there are reports of it being empty. Is this common? I guess first to define what a ghost mall is, um, in terms of real estate, we talk about the, the foot traffic or how many customers are coming into a mall. So a ghost mall would be... Uh, a mall where you would go in and you would feel like you're the only person there or there's really a scarce amount of other people in there. And there's a whole spectrum. Again, there's the, you've got your freak show malls and across China where you go in and there's nobody at all in them all the way through to, to busy malls. So even Beijing, we have a count of over 130 malls in Beijing, and then you multiply that by cities across That's the country. That's how many country. malls there are in Beijing, We, we define malls, you know, yeah. or a, a retail um, outlet, or, you know, there's, there's different ways to classify a mall. But in, in Beijing alone, we, we have a count of around 130 or above. So you put that across the whole country and imagine how many thousands and thousands of malls there are out there. Um, definitely some of them could be defined as ghost malls or failures where they haven't managed to attract any customers or even tenants into the mall. Um, but on the flip side, there's other malls which, which are really bustling and, and still doing very, very well. What typically makes a, a ghost mall? So in the, the development of a mall, you've got different phases. And, you know, the first one is when you acquire the land then you decide what to do with that land. If you're going to build a mall, do you do a mass market mall? Do you do a luxury mall? Do you need a hotel attached to that mall? Do you have a subway coming into the mall? Then once you've decided on the design and the positioning, you move through to leasing. And then once you've filled up the mall with tenants, beyond opening, you actually need to uh, really manage the mall and invest into attracting customers and um, CRM and, and keeping it all humming along nicely. So at each stage, there are different things that could go wrong, which inevitably will result in a ghost mall. One thing that happens in China is we see that developers um, have an a bit of an attitude of, if you build it, they will come. 
and they may just have a piece of land. They may not do the proper research and due diligence into that consumer catchment. Uh, what type of mall is best suited to that area? They simply build the, the hardware and the building and then try and uh, fill it up with tenants later and, and make it work. And often that doesn't happen. Uh, perhaps in the past days of department stores and state-run um, malls, etc., it was easier just to do that, build it, and the local population will come through lack of other alternatives. However, these days you've got a whole range of modern international shopping centres all the way down to still the somewhat outdated department stores and um, to compete for customers now who are more mobile, have cars, um, and will drive to somewhere for a better experience, applying the old model of we will build it and they will come doesn't work necessarily. So, I mean, a question for both of you. I mean, do you see this phenomenon changing? I mean, you, you, what you describe in retail is also true for residential housing, is it not? You know, there are a lot of empty uh, residential buildings uh, that um, you know may have been actually sold. People may own them, but they're sitting empty. There's nobody using them. Um, the, you know, this is the economic model, at least of the last 10, 15 years in, in, in real estate. I mean, is it going to change? Is it changing now as it becomes more apparent how much sort of waste there is in the real estate and construction industries? I, I think it's going to change under the new you know, Xi Jinping administration. I think up until now, when, and I'm talking about waste in the, in the real estate sector, generally speaking, especially residential, still today, there's this system in China whereby uh, local officials are promoted um, due to how much GDP growth they've uh, been able to create uh, locally. And taking land, converting it, using it as collateral for loans, or building it on it has been a very popular way to create that growth. And, uh, you know, we've seen this in, in you know, many, of, many cases throughout China. Actually, in the case that I mentioned before, in Yujiapu in, in, in Tianjin, the mayor of uh, you, the mayor of Tianjin at the time when this was conceived and then invested in and then built, Zhang Gaoli, um, built his career on this, and he now is the uh, vice premier, one of the vice premiers of China. Um, he's one of the one of the standing committee members. He he started at the, as the Shandong Party Secretary, and everywhere he's gone, he's gone to Shandong, he's gone to Tianjin. Uh, wherever he goes or wherever he went in the past, you saw this huge uh, asset. Uh, you know, a lot of investment growth going on. And they, you know, the, the, at the time, the regime liked that. And the party, you know, would, would you know, obviously put an emphasis on that. What, what will your take be on this, you know, uh, Timothy, observing it from a, a sort of a very practical point of view in the industry? Sure. I, I believe there's room for a little bit more regulation uh, on the policy side where governments will give land to shopping mall developers on condition that they do these proper marketing studies and then build it for local catchments or build it um, with, with the proper positioning that makes sense for their environment. Because there's a certain degree of development I see that's going on is where someone's just acquired the land and without thinking and too much planning, they just follow the build it and they will come mentality. Now also, there's, there's a certain degree, I think, of, of what's happening up until now with developers is they haven't been so concerned with how the mall performs and um, bringing money and through the mall's operations because they've simply been making money off the capital gains on the land. And now as that starts to change also, 
more operators are also looking, look, we actually need to get them all up and running properly and we need to um, see and, and plan and, and research how to do that and also how to differentiate from other malls that are around us. So if you've got a luxury mall this side of town or across the road, we need to do something different to differentiate. I think another big part of it is the hardware versus software issue. Um, the building of the malls in China is, is already reached an international standard where some of the hardware and facilities are already world class. But then when it comes to the, um, the software and the managing of the malls, which comes down to people and services and marketing and branding and things, and that's, that's across you know, the whole spectrum of services you could say in China, um, that's a bottleneck where that we still have trouble finding experienced management teams and people who can really get in and, and run these malls and create the whole experience of being in the mall um, top notch. So... What's your take on the idea that there's a property bub bubble in China? I mean, this is a, 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 a constant refrain of economic yeah. and financial reporting. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think you're right. And we're at an interesting time right now because this year we've seen um, a decrease in, in land sales uh, by about a third um, throughout China. Um, we've also seen a slight dip in the price, in, in the price of real estate, the value of real estate in China. A lot of folks think that because the economy is not crashing, because you know we these these are these are slight modifications to what was happening before, and in a, in a bubble scenario, uh, if you have any sort of negative news, usually what happens is things will just crash, and that's not really happening uh, yet in, in in China, and so uh, Yukon Huang, the the uh, the economist from the Carnegie Endowment, um, who also has one of the best. Uh, English names around uh, of any Chinese person I know. <laughs> yes, Yukon. <laughs> Yukon. He recently had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where he uh, dispelled any sort of um, idea that that the the property sector in China was crashing. And the reason that he said that was that, and I, I sort of agree with this, that you know we've only had around ten years in China where land has been privatized, where where you know there have been private ownership of land or you know rights that that you know, kind of get to the point where, where people can privately own land. And in his, in his words, in that time, we've seen the true value of, of, of land in China and that he believes that this is actually the, the value of land today is, is what it's worth. It's about right. Yeah, it's about right. And because basically what, in, in his opinion, um, the socialist system was basically hiding the true value of land in China. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting point. The one thing that, that scares me, though, a little is that because Chinese have so few options of where to invest their money, um, property has always been used as sort of a big bank for people. And if and when uh, Chinese have more options um, for investment opportunities, whether it's investing abroad or whatever, I wonder what's going to happen um, to the real estate market, you know, because it's no longer a de facto bank. Uh, by many right. Chinese. You know, I'd like to ask you, Timothy, about where prices are headed. But before that, I'd just like to raise an issue I, I have with a lot of the, the Western reporting on, on, on Chinese property bubble or so-called, you know, on the, the terrible disasters mm -hmm. that are about to fall the, the, before the Chinese economy because of uh, runaway real estate or um, this type of thing, mm -hmm. which is that I think there is a misunderstanding, at least outside of China, in a lot of economic analysts about how real estate is, is bought here. Mm -hmm. um, and people tend to think that, okay, the global financial crisis is something, you know, that was caused by a property bubble, therefore it could have happened here, which really doesn't understand the fact that most people pay cash. They right. don't have, for, for residential, they don't have mortgages or, or the mortgages are very light. Um, so, 
you know, even if the thing is worth nothing, it's not actually going to be a problem for them as long as they have enough to eat. They can just wait until the market rebounds. Right. It's not a leverage bubble. No, it's not a leverage right. bubble. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, pretty much every Chinese family I know, unless they're actually begging on the street, somebody in the family has got a sock underneath the bed with like 200,000 remember in it. This fact is not noted, I think, in, in media coverage of property bubbles. And it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Well, th- yeah, there's so many, there's so many intangible, there's so many things that aren't written down that's not, that aren't documented in China's economy. And another thing that, that isn't documented documented is sometimes folks will get, you know, they'll put a ton of money down, they'll even buy the property outright with money that's been lent to them through a network of family or friends, or maybe some sort of um, shadow banking group uh, at a very high interest rate because they couldn't get a you know a loan elsewhere. And, you know, that stuff worries me too, because I think that, you know, all of these aspects of the gray economy in China um, make me, you know, unmeasurable. We don't yeah, actually know. We, we what's don't going know, on. and and I think it's so it's hard. You know, you can only speculate as to what what might happen. Okay, so let's turn from speculation to Timothy. <laughs> and can you tell us what's actually happening with retail prices? How you know the malls are they are, are their rents going up or? Yeah, I mean, without wanting to give a wishy washy answer, it, it it really depends. Um, the, the, the top malls in, in I the sense top, speculation. The top malls in the top cities in China, the demand by retailers to get in there is still exceeding supply, and so in the top malls, absolutely rents are going up. However, you've also got other malls, uh, including these ghost malls, or in some cities, you'll suddenly have. Uh, an excessive amount of retail space coming on the market all at once. That happened in Shenyang. There's yeah. um, there, there's a similar scene emerging in Chengdu, though it's a slightly different story. That if all these malls open at once, suddenly supply does exceed demand, and then rents have to come down, or concessions that landlords will give to tenants, such as renovation allowances, need to go up. Okay. I, I wanted to ask Timothy a question. You mentioned Chengdu. In Chengdu, they, I believe that they just built the largest indoor mall or structure in the world. Or oh, the like super that. mall with the swimming yeah, with right. the beach inside right. it's got it, an artificial it's, beach. It's got right. an ocean inside of it and I've, things like I've that. I've seen things on that. I, I haven't been to it yeah. myself. Or. I was just kind of curious about what how that's doing or if, if you know they've sold all of the real estate inside yeah, of Yeah, I mean, I, I don't behemoth. know because you know, I, I haven't okay. been there and right. Chengdu's yeah. not my beat. But I mean, they got a lot of media coverage, which is one thing you'll need to you know attract attention. So, so it, yeah. might, it might end up working. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when it comes to luxury malls, Timothy, what, what's the size of the market? I mean, how many malls, how many stores are we talking yeah. about in China? You know, there's a whole, again, there's a whole range. It depends um, on brands and what they can do. Some of the, the more, the, what we call the first tier luxury brands, brands such as Chanel or Vuitton or some of these big ones, part of their brand positioning is not being too accessible. So they may not, you know, roll out stores in 50 or up to 100 stores across the country. They may just choose the top 20 or so cities um, to open their stores and then make customers go to them as part of their value proposition. Then you've got other brands which could be defined as affordable luxury or even high-end premium brands such as Michael Kors or Coach, Kate Spade um, or others that can open a much wider range of stores from flagship stores all the way to department store counters, and they could potentially go up into um, 100 or even 200 points of sale across the country, meaning there's, they've got a much larger range of cities they could open in. Generally, you look at the first-year cities such as Beijing and Shanghai. Shanghai right now has about um, six or seven 
luxury defined malls um, and that's probably almost capacity um, and Beijing's probably got less than that maybe around five so Beijing Shanghai are, are getting to the point where there's enough dispersion of the luxury brands and the stores across the cities that they're now moving into the brands are moving into the second and third cities looking for more development opportunity and do they actually make money at, at these stores but you know I mean you sometimes hear stories that people just go to the stores to check it out and then they actually buy when they go overseas mm. or they buy online. Mm. No, I mean, the, certainly they, they do make money. Um, obviously, some stores perform better than others and especially some of the, the bigger stores in the high traffic areas with the huge um, three, three or four-story facades, <coughs> even if the store itself is only one or two stories. Some of those stores are also put there as kind of marketing um, collateral where... Um, we know people are walking past this store. We know it's a major thoroughfare for tourists and Chinese. So we, we need a big impact store in that area, even if that's just to get in the consumer's heads so when they go overseas. Um, you know, 2010 to 2012, the luxury brands were seeing record growth in China, hence the, the kind of land grab and the push to expand while, while they can. Since then, uh, 2012, the last few years, the market has been maturing. So growth has slowed to a more kind of normal, the, the new normal level of growth and, and how much money they're going to make. And I guess the anti-corruption campaign has had a very big effect on luxury brands. Well, it, it did. So it's, it's um, put the wind into consumers and a lot of gifting has kind of slowed or people are preferring to buy overseas. And, and there was kind of a, a triple whammy with the that came in 2012 with the corruption, anti-corruption campaign. Around the same time, you have the easing of travel restrictions and um, Chinese can get easier visa access to get into Europe and the <coughs> other countries so they can do their shopping easier overseas. And also by 2012, there was just so many more brands and entrants in the market that the pie for everybody was um, divided much more. So, so those three factors together have, um, have slowed sales for the brands. And another question about luxury that I'd like to direct to both of you, but first to you, Rob, because you live in, in Shanghai, right? Yes. And Shanghai is, you know, the shopping city of China, well known for its materialistic citizens. Yes. And, uh, um, so there, there is a story that occasionally appears in the media that, uh, rich Chinese are starting to tire of bling bling and they no longer want a big Hermes belt with a big H, gold H on it, that, that they're, they're starting to develop a taste for more subtle things and more obscure brands. Um, d does this make any sense? No. I, I, <laughs> I, I still see these things all over Shanghai. And I I've, actually, I, that's news to me. I didn't see a story like that. I mean, I think uh, Shanghai is always going to be one of these places where that's you know, that's what you see when you walk down the, the street. That's actually, what it's for. Actually. That's what it's for. Shanghai's there. So that Shanghai's there watch. for for Hermes belts. <laughs> we watch yeah. someone hold their chihuahua in a in a in a coach bag in the same hand. I think. Yeah, I think, and, and it's interesting. You know, the the the, the luxury malls in in Shanghai, at least as far as I'm concerned, I've noticed that at least they they don't seem to be doing poorly. I mean, they, they seem to be not only doing well, but they've, they've been building a few more mm -hmm. um, in, in areas that are the, the, the posher areas of, of, of Shanghai. So I think that Shanghai in many ways, uh, you know, in every respect is, is so separated from reality in China um, and in this respect as well. What, what would your take be on that, Timothy? 
you know, Shanghai is definitely a bit more bling. Um, and one thing we see in Beijing is with the, the, the more artists and culture and things like that, uh, which is different from Shanghai, is, is the chi- Beijing consumer is a little bit more willing to go avant-garde and display their personality through through less less logos and more brand names. Also government, uh, very heavy influence in Beijing. And, you know, you don't see many government officials getting around in, you know, pink blazers and... And so the, <laughs> not, not, not after people started posting photos no, of NPC no, I mean, delegates wearing Adamus belts. It, it, it changed. There was a young lady in a pink number. Um, yeah. But the gentlemen yeah. especially, and gentlemen's market in, mm. well, the men's you know, fashion accessories market in China is bigger than most other countries. Um, mm. But it tends to be more demure um, colors and things mm. that they're going after. Although they do, they do like the belts with the, the letters on them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and, and just one thing on... on on what you said about the, the Shanghai Luxury Mall. So an, an average lease for a big store in China, a big luxury or, or you know other fashion store, is a minimum of five years and could be five to eight years. So brands opening new stores are looking at a long-term horizon in China. Mm. And with, with the speed of change in China, you know, can you say that eight years down the line, luxury won't back, be back in favor? Um, so it's really a, you know, not just a quarterly play, which necessarily is is what the the analysts and the stock guys are looking at, but these retailers are looking at more the long term mm-hmm. play for China. Okay, makes a lot of sense. Um, let's move on to another topic dear to my heart, which is uh, in the internet and e commerce. So. How is e-commerce affecting the mall business? I mean, you know, anecdotal evidence from my own life, I have plenty of it because I do it. I mean, I don't ever go to a mall anymore unless there's a restaurant there that I have to go to that somebody makes me visit or, you know, there's some exceptional reason. You know, it's basically Jing Dong, Alibaba. That's my shopping world. And a lot of my Chinese colleagues and friends uh, seem to be similar. Uh, Is e-commerce going to destroy the mall as we know it? Well, e-commerce has already completely disrupted them all. Uh, I wouldn't say it's going to destroy them all. Um, I think for a more ubiqu- ubiquitous products um, that you don't need to go and try, you've used them before, um, definitely it's, it's much more convenient, especially uh, to buy on Taobao, Jindong, etc. But shopping is still an experience, and especially for fashion. People want to go and look at it, try it on, you know, turn around in front of the mirror. And I think there will always be a place for shopping malls. Um, the malls are worried about e-commerce and some of the work we're doing now is working with malls to help them um, get uh, O2O savvy or how to plug into the digital world. O2O meaning? Online to offline. Online to offline, meaning they they see a, a thing on, on the internet and then they decide to go to the store. Well, exactly. I mean, the, the new kind of, um, the, the future people say of retail is omni-channel retail where you can order online <coughs> but pick up in the store or you can delivered to your house from an e-commerce purchase but if it's the wrong color or size you can take it back to the store mm. so there the store in the mall acts as the uh, logistics hub for e-commerce um, so that's where both online and offline all just come in and, and it's a bit technical it's it's all possible with today's technology to do it but there's a whole lot of back-end system that needs to happen um, and and how retailers and shopping malls are all adapting to that and setting up their systems is, is really what's driving the new wave of retail the mall is not going away, Jeremy. The mall is not going away, and neither here nor in America. <laughs> um, oh, dear. Um, what about, uh, I mean, can we talk a little bit about showrooming, which uh, I understand means uh, when somebody will go to a store because they want to actually have the experience mm-hmm. of seeing the item, mm-hmm. but then they won't actually buy it there. They'll go and buy it online. Is that a common phenomenon in China? I mean, it's, it's an emerging phenomenon around the world. Um, 
what we're seeing also a little bit coming out this year as data analytics and the companies and retailers start to understand more of the what we call the path to purchase is how you use your different digital devices um, or you go into the store to ultimately make that purchase either online or offline. So we're also seeing what's called web rooming now where you first browse on the web and then you go to the mall to buy what you want. So b- both these different things are happening and yes, it, it happens in China as well. I'd like to uh, ask a question about a slightly different type of, of retail and I think this is uh, for Rob because it's not really... Uh, what you do, which is, you know, where the lumpen proletariat shop, Timothy, you don't deal with the, the unwashed masses, <coughs> but Walmart-type uh, big-box mm. retailers um, require a drive and encourage shoppers to purchase as much as possible at discounts. Um, you know, Rob, what's your take? How much has this kind of uh, terrible phenomenon infected Chinese cities? <laughs> um, and is its development being threatened by e-commerce, do you think? That's a really good question. I don't have an answer to that. I, I, uh, this is not something I've studied very well. Um, I, you know, because a lot of the stuff that I do on Walmart has to do with the labor at Walmart. I, you know, my sense is that, that Walmart, I think, will always be popular among the masses um, because it's, uh, it's basically based on these great deals you're going to get if you go on Saturday and, you know, you clip a coupon or you, you know, you, you're, you're, you know, they have a huge sale or the discount item, you know, and I think that, that, that obviously appeals to, to, to Chinese consumers and Chinese shoppers. Uh, and so I think, you know, as far as they'll have that, I mean, I think they're, they're going to do quite well and they are doing quite well. They're expanding, um, you know, in some ways exponentially in China right now. So basically a good deal. I don't know. Wait, Timothy, is, what do you think? I, I think I think it's, uh, you know, I think Walmart is, is one of these things that just does well because uh, of the great deals they have and, and the, you know, the, it's, it's, its impact on the entire economy because it can get those deals. It can, it can force its manufacturers to, 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 to just sell at a very low price. And, you know, that, that's just what they do. I mean, one common trait for China's consumers that stands them out is their, their willingness and um, fanaticism almost to hunt for a bargain and right. get a good deal. And that's where e-commerce gives perfect price information and they can really get those, those best deals. So I think that's where Walmart comes in simply by offering great right. deals, which Chinese love to go for. I mean, even I go, you know, I go to Metro, on, which right. is, I think, a, a German big, big box retailer and the amount of people pushing trolleys out full of, you know, stacked up with toilet paper on the weekend right. um, just because it's a great value deal is... Um, you know, phenomenal. Just be careful about buying donkey meat at Walmart, though. The donkey meat? What, it's yes. actually rat meat? It could be oh, fox meat. It could be fox meat. Yes. <laughs> We've seen that in Shandong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. I'm referring I mean, to a story in Shandong where uh, f- uh, people c- caught Walmart selling donkey meat uh, or a supplier at Walmart was selling donkey meat, uh, and it was actually fox meat. It was actually fox meat. Yes. A much rarer animal, one would have thought. But <laughs> <laughs> I, You know, the food uh, news is, is quite amusing. I mean, I, I found the recent scandals about the, the supplier to McDonald's and other fast food uh, companies with the, the substandard meat and people worrying about their health if they buy junk food mm-hmm. <laughs> quite right. amusing right. <laughs> because right. it's like, if you want to stay healthy just don't eat it whether it's expired or not <laughs> yeah i doubt that that had a huge impact on uh consumers going to mcdonald's in in china uh, but well i mean another way that corruption crackdown has has affected retail is that 
um, especially the high-end restaurants are much less willing to open new doors these days right. because the you know the amount of business they're doing has decreased. Right, yeah. and th- that is a phenomenon that seems to be very well documented. Yeah. I mean, yeah. every mm-hmm. single authoritative source I've seen seems mm-hmm. to think that high-end restaurants are having a tough yeah. time. And so that's yeah, that, well, that's one area where rents would generally be going right. down. Would be going down, right? Um, okay, we're starting to reach the end of our time, but I'd like to do a horrible thing to both of you and ask you if you ha- would care to make any predictions about the Chinese real estate market of any kind, you know, whether it's the, you know, whether ghost cities will rise like phoenixes uh, and, 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 and become alive again, the direction of the pricing in, in retail or residential property. Is there anything you think will happen in the future that perhaps people aren't really paying attention to that you might be able to talk about? Well, I don't think that there's going to be a real estate crash uh, in China anytime soon. All right. Um, you said that. Yeah. It's, I did. Uh, no, it's, and, not, and it's I, on the record. I, I stand, I stand it's on mind. the record. I, I, okay. I don't think that that's going to happen. Okay. I don't, I mean, just looking at all the things that I've seen, I just, I think that, you know, a lot of times these media reports, you know, including mine about, about ghost cities and, you know, China's always sort of misunderstood by a lot of people just because of its sheer scale. And uh, where there are ghost cities, there are also flourishing uh, second tier, third tier cities that are doing quite well. And um, I just I'm not sure if I buy the idea that uh, there's going to be, you know, a cataclysmic crash of the real estate sector in China. I think it is going to uh, uh, decline and that will probably have uh, an impact on China's GDP growth because, you know, 10 percent of China's GDP is the real estate sector. It's worth about a trillion dollars. And so, you know, even if it declines around 20, 30 percent, let's say, um, it could have up to four uh, percent knockoff on the GDP growth of, of China, which is significant, but it is not a crash. Okay, there we have it. Timothy. I, I have a few predictions. First of all, one area where Chinese retail is very different from the rest of the world is the way department stores operate. In many other countries, department stores themselves act as retailers where they will go and buy merchandise and create an edit of the products and, and then sell them on to consumers. Chinese department stores don't do that. They simply act as landlords where they rent out the space. Now, I think over time, Chinese department stores will start to have to become retailers themselves buy products um, wholesale off the brands and and retailers and then learn how to make an edit for their local demographic of consumers to attract them in. I think that's one one area. The second is, I think, you know, the e-commerce and and physical retail, how that plays out in China um, will leapfrog many other countries and China will become a a best-in-class, world-leading, omni-channel retail country where uh, mobile commerce, e-commerce, and then the physical commerce are all, are all tied in together. And I think over the long term, going back to what I said about the retailers looking more more into the you know, five to ten year range, I think um, the cities will mature and, and the, the, the shopping malls will kind of, the ghost malls will, will die off because they're not succeeding and the strong, strong malls will consolidate and over time um, retail will just move into a, a, a growth period but it will not be so uh, frantic, it'll be more... Um, uh, more slower growth. Thank you, gentlemen. That's uh, you're very honourable for answering a question like that. Let's move on to the final section of the <coughs> show, which is recommendations. Rob, what you got for us? Oh, um, I wanted to recommend a movie that I have not seen yet, but I know is a, is going to be a very good film. It's premiering premiered this past uh, weekend, I believe, at MoMA in in New York City. Um, it's it's uh, a film that was uh, made by uh, a local. 
uh, Lawai here in Beijing, Jocelyn Ford, who used to be the marketplace uh, reporter uh, in the beginning of the 2000s. Um, she, uh, the, the film is called Nowhere to Call Home. And it's a, it's a film about a Tibetan, a, a Tibetan widow who has a seven-year-old son and she sells trinkets here in Beijing. And it's about the, the, um, the treatment she has here in Beijing as well as the poor treatment she has within her own village back home in the Aba Prefecture in Tibet, um, where her whole family is sort of bullied um, because the family only had girls. Um, and so it, it, it really tackles some topics that haven't been really approached uh, either in, in China nor in, in the Western press, you know, because I think Tibet is oftentimes seen in very extreme ways, both by the West and, and here in China. And here is a film that appears to be treating this topic uh, with a more nuanced uh, kind of eye. And so I, I, I'm really, really excited to see this film. Oh, that's yeah, that sounds great. I, I, I would second that as somebody who hasn't seen the film, but mm-hmm. I've known jo- Jocelyn's work for many years, yeah. and I am looking forward to seeing it. Thank you, Timothy. Sure. Um, I mean, a couple of blogs. When I have time, I like to post stuff up on on my blog, which is mousesuit.com. Another one on the, f- the fashion, luxury, and consumer industries is Jing Daily. Uh, Jing Daily, right? J I N G. They're they're a good one for real estate. Ming TND has a lot of real estate coverage and then um, just to get a you know get an insight on the global um, global luxury retail industry there's a great book called Deluxed I think it's by Dana Thomas um, it's not China specific but um, reading that will give you a good insight to, to, to my world fantastic thank you I would like to recommend today um, an old blog from the, the, the what we have referred to as the golden age of English language blogging about China uh, which is ESWN Dongnan Xibei or Zona Europa which was one of the finest blogs ever in the whole universe uh, and covered China from about the same time that I started Danway about 2003 um, Roland Song the the, uh, the blogger hasn't posted I think for more than a year and Roland if you're out there somewhere uh, I'd love to know uh, what you're up to. Um, but uh, the archives are quite phenomenal. I mean, Roland ch- uh, translated um, most of the best and most interesting Chinese commentary for many, many years, huge translations that he often would do, you know, within hours of their being published and he'd find stuff that nobody else had. And he's still really unrivaled, I think, in English language blogging about China. That used to be my favorite blog on China. Not Donway. Yeah, well, no. Donway, of yeah. course. I guess it was a tie, maybe. Um, but when did when did his blog start kind of trailing off? Well, it's been going for a few years. And I mean, I think yeah. part of it was he had family things to take care of. And part of it was that, I mean, the same thing happened to Dunway in a way, was that we started to realize that, you know, at one point it was, there were only a handful of people translating stuff from the right. Chinese internet. But now you have... Hordes and hordes and hordes, you know, ranging from, uh, you know, Chinese people themselves, foreign students of of Mandarin to, you know, the the big papers, uh, uh, the FT, my own uh, organization now, and New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. I mean, they they all have so much China coverage compared to those days. So, Jeremy, do you think there's a bubble growing in the English translation of Chinese blogs. Uh, you know what? I think it burst already. <laughs> I think at least when it comes to monetary value, it burst already. <laughs> so <laughs> It's good you got out while you could. <laughs> hey, I'm still in. I just uh, work for somebody else now. 
<laughs> okay, on that note, Timothy, <laughs> Rob, thank you so much for being on this show. And, you know, I, I did say that uh, people talking about real estate over dinner was boring, but I think our conversation wasn't. So thank you very much. Thanks, Jared. Thank you.